You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. This morning, we want to have a look at what the Bible actually does have to say about Jesus. Jesus has been telling us in John chapter 5 that all of the scriptures are about him and Moses wrote of him. But if you ever wondered why our Bibles are so thick, I've got one here that is more than 2,100 pages and there's no study notes or anything in there. It's just the text alone. And uh, Bibles, there's about 31,000 verses in the Bible. Roughly 75% of those are in the Old Testament, 25% in the New. And there's almost 800,000 words to read the Bible. Again, the split's roughly 75-25. So I guess that raises a question, why is it, if faith in Jesus Christ is so important, that we even bother with the Old Testament? Why not just read the New Testament alone? Because the Old Testament, the Testament never says anything about Jesus, does it? And anyway, the Old Testament's full of unintelligible visions and prophecies, boring genealogies irrelevant laws, outdated rituals. What's the point of reading the Old Testament at all? But Jesus himself told us why it's important. In John 5.39, and we've read this just uh, last week, I think it was, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me for life. And in a few verses further on, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's be honest. Trying to read the Old Testament has put more people off reading the Bible cover to cover than probably anything else. The writings of Moses in particular, the very writings that Jesus said spoke of him, have defeated many well-meaning attempts to read right through the Bible. Are we missing something important here? Now, it's not always an easy job of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, but none of it is anywhere near as clear as the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament is. Hopefully today I'll be able to show you enough that will whet your appetite a little bit and help you help you to begin spotting Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, the Pharisees knew every conceivable detail about the scriptures, which is our Old Testament. They studied them minutely to understand every part of them. They poured over them day and night. They discussed them, debated them, turned them over every which way so that they missed nothing. They'd get a perfect score on a Bible trivia quiz. But their study was all to no avail, for they missed what the scriptures were designed to teach them. Now, intimate knowledge of the scriptures is useless if you miss the point of them. They're not designed for academic debate. They're not designed to help you prove that you're right and your opponent is wrong. The purpose of them is that we would see Jesus Christ and in response, that we would come to him for salvation, for eternal life. 
Now, it's a big claim that Jesus makes. All the scriptures bear witness to him. The precious writings of Moses were about him. If he's wrong, it's one of the most arrogant claims anyone could make. It would be like me saying a biography of Winston Churchill was written about me or the Encyclopedia Britannica is all about me. But what if his claims are true? That not only has a profound effect on how we study our Bible, but it opens up the whole Bible to us like nothing before. And it helps to determine our eternal destiny. For the more we recognise Jesus in the scriptures, for us, that's both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the more compelling is the call to come to him for life. You'd recall when Jesus commenced his ministry, he began by quoting a much-loved passage from Isaiah 61. Luke chapter 4 it says that Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. That's how Jesus began his ministry. And that's exactly what he did in his ministry for three or so years. Now, the people thought that this was wonderful. Not surprisingly, they loved hearing such good news. But as Jesus continued to speak that day, the mood of the crowd began to turn. In verse 21 of Luke 4, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, He went away. You know, the attempts to kill Jesus started on the very first day of his ministry. He didn't have to get through three or three and a half years of ministry before they tried to kill him. The very first day they tried to kill him. And things don't get better than that. They don't get any better after that. He was under constant scrutiny and the subject of many plots to kill him, culminating, of course, as we know, in his arrest and trial and execution in three or so years' time. None of it, of course, was a surprise to Jesus. It had all been predicted in the Scriptures, and it wouldn't have been a surprise to the religious leaders either, if only they understood the very Scriptures they professed to revere. Jesus often makes claims in the Gospels that the Scriptures speak of him, You remember the story of the two disciples, dejected disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. Jesus said to them, he joined them, and he said to them as they were walking along, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. When these two disciples finally realised who they'd been talking to, they declared, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That's the key. We need the scriptures opened up to us to recognise what they're saying. That, of course, is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the revealer of truth. For those who are already Christians, we already have the Holy Spirit who promises to lead us into all truth. So my task today is just to point you to some of those passages to whet your appetite and to prime you for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. There'll be vastly more than we can cover this morning, vastly more than we could cover in a lifetime, I dare say. I'll try to cover off some of the chief points. Now, we've been working our way through John's gospel for some time now, and John opens his gospel with the, the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Paul later wrote in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Where can we find that? In the Old Testament, Jesus said it was all written about him. So we should be able to see that somewhere in the Old Testament. And in fact, if we go to the very first of those 31,000 verses we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that says God created. It doesn't say anything about Jesus, you might protest. But what have we been looking at for the last several weeks in John chapter 5? Only Jesus telling the Jews in no uncertain terms that he is God. So the Bible actually opens with words about Jesus. And before we get to the end of the very first chapter, the Bible tells us about the creation of the first man, Adam, who was made in the image of God. And Adam is a picture of Jesus Christ, who is called in the New Testament, the last Adam. So Adam was a perfect, sinless being, placed in a perfect, sinless creation. In fact, he was created as our representative. But as we know, Adam failed in the task that God had set for him. He faced temptation to want to be like God in that perfect environment, and he succumbed to that temptation. He sinned, and he thereby introduced sin into all of creation. Jesus, by way of similarity, but also by way of contrast, is a perfect person, but he's introduced into an imperfect and sinful environment. Jesus also faced temptation, not to be like God, but to prove he was God. But Jesus never succumbed. And as a consequence, Jesus can rescue from the sin that Adam plunged us into. Adam's role was to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Roles that would one day be split up among three different groups of people. He failed in all three roles, as did every prophet, priest and king who followed him. But there is a prophet 
a priest and a king who filled the role perfectly. And all of those Old Testament people and all of those Old Testament tasks pointed to this one person, Jesus Christ, in whom the three roles would one day be combined again. And this time, this prophet, priest and king would not fail in the task that's appointed to him. So every time you read about Adam or about a prophet, a priest or a king in the Old Testament, you're gleaning a little bit more information about what a perfect prophet, priest and king should be like, about what Jesus Christ is like. After Adam's fateful fall from perfection, we read about the very first in a long, long line of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Multiplied millions of animals, mostly lambs, were sacrificed down through the centuries. And each and every sacrifice points to Jesus Christ. The first one was in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were ashamed and guilty for, for their sin, and they tried to hide from God, making clothes from fig leaves. God confronted them about their sin, but God also sacrificed the first animal on their behalf. He made clothes from the skins to cover over their nakedness and their shame. There's some important lessons from this simple story for us already. And there'll be many, many more lessons from the sacrifices that were to follow. The first lesson is that sin is costly. The penalty, as God warned Adam, is death. But rather than the sinner needing to die and to be eternally separated from God, a substitute is permitted and acceptable, at least in the short term. The death of this substitute will cover over their sin. The substitute itself was an innocent victim of Adam's sin. God himself provided the substitute. And because God accepted this death as a substitute for Adam, Adam's life was spared. These are not the only lessons to be learned about sacrifices, but it's a starting point. A little further on in the Bible, we come across another story of sacrifice that teaches us a little bit more. If you were to go to Genesis 22, you would read about Abraham, who was called to take his son Isaac, his only son whom he loves. And God seems to emphasize that your son, your only son whom you love but take him up to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. They take no lamb to offer up, for Abraham says God will provide for himself a lamb. Note the word order there. It's important. God will provide for himself a lamb. Abraham and Isaac travel three days to Mount Moriah, where Abraham builds an altar, ties his son up, who appears to accept his fate willingly and without protest, and puts him on the altar to sacrifice him. As Abraham raises the knife to kill his son, God calls out from heaven to stop him. And when Abraham looks around, there's a ram caught in the thicket, most likely a thorn bush, which Abraham then sacrifices as a substitute for his son. Incidentally, the place where Abraham and Isaac went to sacrifice was the same place where a cross would stand 2,000 years later with another son, another beloved son, hanging on it. This later son is the Lamb of God 
who went willingly to his death. Now Isaac was the son through whom God had promised Abraham many descendants. So this story also gives us an early hint of resurrection. For symbolically, Isaac came back from the dead on the third day. There are more animal sacrifices to come yet. In Exodus, we read of the Passover lamb, where each household sacrificed a lamb and used its blood to paint the doorposts and lintels of their houses. When the angel of the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over that house and leave them unharmed. But those unprotected by the blood of the lamb suffered the loss of every firstborn son in their house. Again, we see the principle of substitution. The death of an innocent lamb provides protection from harm. This too was pointing to a future time when all who would put their trust in God would be protected by the blood of another sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In churches around the world today, we celebrate the fulfilment of this Passover every time we take communion recognising that the blood shed by this perfect and innocent substitute delivers us from death. Not long after this, the sacrificial system begins in earnest. God directs the people to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, where God would dwell amongst his people. And part of the ritual of the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem was the regular offerings of lambs without blemish to cover over the sins of the people. Untold millions of lambs were sacrificed. Every time you read of a sacrifice in the Old Testament, you're reading a little more of the picture of the perfect sacrifice that was to come in Jesus Christ. Every lamb sacrificed is another little picture of resurrection. For the one offering the sacrifice escapes the punishment due for his sin and gets their life back in exchange for the death of the innocent victim. But the fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again meant that something much more valuable than a lamb or a goat or a bull would be needed to cover over sin forever. All of these sacrifices were designed to point to the one coming sacrifice that would deal with sin once and for all and never needing to be repeated. That coming sacrifice would be Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb, Jesus Christ, is provided by God for himself. This sacrifice is the final perfect sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. Those who accept this final perfect sacrifice on their behalf, have their own sins covered over and never need to offer another sacrifice again. And those who accept this final perfect sacrifice on their behalf get their life back eternally. This theme of sacrifice for sins runs right through the Bible from beginning to end. And the purpose of all of it is to teach us about Jesus Christ and the offering that he would make, and the offering that he would become as a substitute for others. I've spent 
quite a bit of time on this one theme of sacrifice because it's one of the most important pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We can see it pretty clearly with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of the New Testament. But Jesus told the Pharisees that they should have been able to see it too, just in their Old Testament. And they should have received him on the basis of that. Now, it's not only the rituals that reveal Jesus Christ to us. There's many and various characters in the Old Testament that reveal him too, sometimes by their good qualities, sometimes by way of contrast with their bad qualities. The Old Testament is full of what are sometimes called types of Christ. Now, a type is not the whole picture. Rather, it's a similarity, a likeness, a resemblance, a pattern of the real thing. Because all the Old Testament characters were flawed in some way, the pattern is never perfect. But while a pattern is not the final product, a pattern helps to reveal what the final product will look like. Isaac, who I mentioned earlier, is a type of Christ. So I won't spend any more time on him this morning, but Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph was the beloved son of his father. Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob by Rachel. He was hated and betrayed by his brothers. His brothers wanted to kill him. He suffered greatly, but he maintained his integrity. Joseph was tempted without succumbing, and he was accused and condemned on false charges. And he was eventually exalted to the right hand of the ruler of the land. Joseph was used by God to dispense bread during a time of famine. Joseph freely forgave and restored his brothers, and he made his brothers citizens of the kingdom. Are you seeing a picture of Christ in Joseph? David is a type of Christ. David's name means beloved. He was from a lowly, humble family, despised by his brothers as well. David was a shepherd, a shepherd who protected his flock, even at the risk of his own life. David was zealous to defend God's name. In fact, he single-handedly defeated Israel's greatest enemy using weapons that are not normally associated with war. He welcomed the poor, the misfits, the outcasts, those who were in debt, And he was a king chosen not by the people, but by God. And there was nothing about David's appearance that would ever suggest that he would be a ruler. David gained his wife by destroying his enemies. He was a man in whom God delighted. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was anointed for service. More and more pictures of Jesus Christ. And there's many more who we can consider as types of Christ. Just to name a few of those, there's Noah, Jacob, Melchizedek, Moses, Joshua, Boaz, Solomon, Elisha, Hosea, Jonah, Zechariah. Each and every one of them teaches us something more about Jesus Christ. In fact, whenever we read of any character in the Old Testament, the first question for us should not be, what lessons about life and behaviour can I learn to, from, to imitate this person? 
we shouldn't be looking for how we can dare to be a Daniel, as it's sometimes said. For every single one of these characters, with the solitary exception of Jesus Christ, is flawed. Rather, we should ask ourselves, what does this person teach me about my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and about my salvation? There's so much more that we could say about that, but there's an untold number of events in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ as well. There's Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28 on which the angels are ascending and descending. Jesus tells us in John 1.51 that that ladder was actually himself, bridging the otherwise impassable gulf between earth and heaven. There's the rock in the wilderness in Exodus 17. The people were grumbling and complaining about the lack of water. So the Lord told Moses to strike the rock. And when he did, enough water gushed out of the rock to quench the thirst of millions of people and all their livestock. However, when they later ran out of water again, they began complaining again. This time, the Lord told Moses not to to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock to make it produce water. But Moses, in his frustration and anger with the people, struck the rock again. God graciously supplied the water they needed, but Moses was disciplined by the Lord for not doing as he was told. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock that they drank from was Christ. And after being struck that once, Christ's people only ever need to ask to receive refreshment and life. Just like Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There are many, many more events that foreshadow Christ. The flood and Noah's ark are pictures of Christ. The manner in the wilderness which nourished God's people and gave them life is a picture of Christ. The serpent lifted up on the pole is a picture of Christ. The scapegoat is a beautiful picture of Christ. I wish we had time this morning to have more of a look at that. The tabernacle and the temple are pictures of Christ and even the furnishings of the tabernacle are pictures of Christ. Now, I said almost nothing about prophecy so far, but the Old Testament is also full of prophecies about Christ. The Old Testament predicted that he would be a descendant of King David, that he would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be called God's son. He would spend time in Egypt. And a prophet like Elijah would pave the way for him but he'd be rejected by his own people. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be mocked, beaten and abused and executed by crucifixion, which was not a normal way of executing in those days. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb and he would rise again. They're all prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. That's only 13 of something like 300 prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. All of them were written many, many centuries before, some of them maybe 2,000 years before Christ came. 
and they were all fulfilled in minute detail by Jesus Christ. Now, the mathematical probability that any single person would fulfill any of these prophecies, let alone all of them, is so minuscule that it would be beyond comprehension. Chuck Mislov, Bible teacher, former engineer and mathematician, did some calculations a number of years ago on the probability that just 48 of these 300 prophecies could be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His conclusion was that the chance of one man fulfilling just 48 was 1 in 10 to the power of 157. Try to picture that number. That's a 1 with 157 zeros behind it. That's roughly the same probability that you would find one single atom amongst all the atoms in every planet and every star and every galaxy in the universe. That's a staggering figure. Now, putting your trust, as we know, in Jesus Christ is not based on mathematical probability, but the probability that these prophecies written 1,500 years before some of them would be fulfilled in minute detail in one person suggests that we should be taking his claims seriously. That they could all be fulfilled in Jesus Christ should be more than enough proof for any sane person. All this, of course, still barely scratches the pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. What about all his sayings that came straight out of the Old Testament? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Isaiah 56, 7, Jeremiah 7, 11. This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah 56. Before Abraham was, I am. Exodus three fourteen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Psalm 31.5. So many of the things Jesus said or were said about him were lifted directly out of the Old Testament. And you'll find some of those gems in some of the most boring and repetitious books of the Old Testament. To name just two of them, the story of Moses striking the rock the second time is in numbers, as is the story of the serpent lifted up on the pole. If you're reading these books with an eye to see Jesus Christ there instead of just endless genealogies, you'll find them much more interesting and much more valuable too. So if Jesus Christ really is written into the fabric of the Bible, that means a few important things for us. Firstly, it means that we can trust what is written, for God has backed up his claims. It means that contrary to popular belief, the God revealed in the Old Testament and the Jesus revealed in the New Testament are not two different and separate beings at odds with each other. The God of the Old Testament is not an angry, vengeful, legalistic God. Jesus didn't need to come and calm him down and be nice to people. There's no good cop, bad cop routine designed to break down our resistance. Rather, it all speaks of one person, Jesus Christ, revealing both his holiness and his grace to us. In fact, the Apostle John makes clear 
that when Isaiah saw in that wonderful passage in Isaiah 6, the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, that who it was that Isaiah actually saw was Jesus Christ. John 12, 37 to 43 makes that claim. It means we can learn much, much more about Jesus Christ by studying the Old Testament in conjunction with the New Testament than we could ever hope to learn about him by studying the New Testament alone. The fact that so many prophecies have already been fulfilled in minute detail means that we can be certain that the ones that are not yet fulfilled will one day be fulfilled. That means, of course, that we need to take seriously Jesus' warning that he's returning to judge the whole human race on the basis of whether they received him or rejected him. That's a serious warning. And of course, the purpose for our study should never merely be for curiosity or personal interest or academic debate. It should always be to learn of him and to love him more. The Bible opens with Jesus. It closes with him too. The last several verses of Revelation record Jesus talking about himself in Old Testament terms. The Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The root and descendant of David. The bright morning star. The source of water for the thirsty. Most of those come out of Isaiah. The bright morning star comes out of that boring book, Numbers. The Bible about is about him on every page, in between the beginning and the end. And you don't get to sit on the fence about this. You are required to make a decision about Jesus Christ based on the evidence, based on the testimony. You might want to put it off for a while, but that's a dangerous path. For you don't know just how soon you'll be required to give an account of what you have done with this one of whom the whole Bible speaks, Jesus Christ. As we've seen over the last few weeks in John 5, the evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be is pretty solid. When you add to that all the evidence that the Old Testament provides about who he is, it's overwhelming. If you're a Christian today, you can believe the Bible from cover to cover. And I encourage you to read the Bible with eyes and with a heart open to see your Lord and Saviour on every single page. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to take seriously his claims today. You need to recognise that everything said about him hundreds and even thousands of years before he came has been shown to be true. And it remains true to this day. Therefore, if you've never put your trust in him, I call on you today to put your trust in the one that Moses wrote about, the one that all the Bible is about. If you don't know how to do that, ask a Christian friend or a neighbour or get in touch with us. We'd all love to help you to meet him for yourself and to see him on every page of the Bible. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our eyes are so often blind to what the words of Scripture say about Jesus Christ. We get bogged down, Lord, in in little things, in petty things. Uh, we, we neglect to see what you have 
revealed to us in scripture life. We neglect to see, even in those genealogies, the connections with Jesus Christ. We neglect to see in the laws, Lord, the holiness of Jesus Christ presented for us and the grace that's offered to us in the sacrifices. We read about the sacrifices, Lord, and we, we tend not to see that we're reading about a substitute that is offered to cover over sins of those who are guilty, an innocent substitute who covers the sins of those who are guilty. Lord, we pray that as we pick up our Bibles to read them and read them from the beginning, Lord, that you will open our eyes to see Jesus Christ in there. You'll open our eyes to see this substitute who never once was guilty of sin and yet who was offered up on our behalf as our representative to cover our sins, to bring forgiveness of sins, to bring reconciliation with you, Father, to bring adoption into your family, Lord, to become brothers of this perfect Jesus Christ. One, ones who he is not ashamed to call brothers because he has been because we've been bought by his precious blood. Would you open our eyes to see all this and more, Lord? Would you open our eyes to see the glory of resurrection to come? Resurrection of Jesus Christ firstly, Lord, but the resurrection that will restore us eternally to life in your presence, where every tear will be taken away, every sickness, every frustration, every sin will be taken away forever, Lord, and eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal uh, love will be experienced with you, Lord. Every page of our Bibles, Lord, speaks of this, speaks of the one whose life work was to do this and to reconcile us to you. So, Father, I pray and I ask that your Holy Spirit will open up our eyes to see Jesus Christ on every page and will cause us to love him more, to worship him more, and to never, ever forget the beauty of our salvation. And pray this in the name of the one that the Bible is about, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, Lamb of God, Son of God. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.